Good evening and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Meghnad Desai. I used to teach here. Um, this uh, program is going to be podcast, so anything you say will be taken down against you and be filmed. Uh, but I won't tell Jackie Smith, so it won't be used against you in any post-terrorism act. Okay. Uh, great pleasure to welcome Fari Zakaria uh, to the LSE. He is one of those people who basically in the global village is an intellectual presence and has informed us on many occasions, both through his work in Newsweek and, and Foreign Affairs, as well as through his books. Uh, since he is very famous, and you all will not be here if he is not so famous, I'm not going to waste any more time introducing him, except to say that Farid Zakai is going to speak on the post-American world. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I have had many introductions in my life, and many of them begin by saying Fareed Zakaria needs no introduction, and then proceed to give a very lengthy one, which, of course, I have heard many, many times. This is the first time somebody has actually been true to his word and, and, and given me no introduction, which is an awkward feeling. I must say, I, at this point, I'm missing the recitation of college degrees and awards that I've, I've received. Um, but I'm actually grateful. Thank you, uh, Lord. It's also the first time I've been, uh, I've been uh, introduced by a real live Lord. Um, it's a great pleasure to be at the LSC. My father came here as a poor scholarship student from India in 1944. The, the um, person on the ship told him, have you gone mad? Most people are leaving London in 1944. But uh, such was life. And he came here and went to the LSC, actually. He uh, got a scholarship here. Uh, to work with uh, Harold Lasky on, uh, in economics. And very quickly, Harold Lasky said to him, you're actually not interested in economics. You're interested in politics, so you should go to SOAS, the School of Oriental and, Af uh, and African Studies, which he did. Um, of course, given the course of the Indian economy after that, uh, administered by many of Harold Lasky's uh, students, one wishes more people had taken my father's uh, course, I suppose. <laughs> Um, but in any event, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'd, I'd love to uh, start this off. I thought I'd just talk a little bit about, about the book and the themes it raises. You know, I thought about, I began thinking about writing this book in a taxi in Singapore. I was in a cab, and the guy was showing me around, and he takes me from one place to the other, and he tells me at some point, he says, you know, we have this Ferris wheel that you should take a look at. And I looked at it, and... I suppose in a somewhat patronizing voice, I said, oh, that's a very nice Ferris wheel you have here in Singapore. And he turns around and he says to me, uh, sir, that's the largest Ferris wheel in the world. So I gulped and said nothing. And a couple of months later, I remember being in China and somebody was showing me around the, uh, the mall in Beijing called the South China Mall in Beijing. Uh, and the guy showing me around at some point uh, comments on the fact that it's seems very large. And I said, yes, it is very large. And he, and he says, well, it's actually the largest mall in the world. And at this point, of course, I've learned my lesson, so I don't say anything. But I think to myself, that can't be true, because I was in Minneapolis and went to the Mall of the Americas in Minneapolis. And it says right under it, largest mall in the world. And so I thought, well, poor guy, you know, it's probably for China, the largest mall in the world or something. And I go back to my hotel room and do the kind of careful research that uh, journalists are famous for. I, I Googled a, a bunch. <laughs> um, 
And I discovered that uh, three years ago, the Mall of the Americas was indeed the largest mall in the world, but now it was number nine. Uh, and so I wrote that in the book, by the way, and now it's actually number 11 by the time the book came out. Um, and then I started collecting a little list of these things, and I discovered that, you know, the largest publicly traded corporation in the world is now in China. The richest man in the world most weeks is in Mexico City. The other weeks he's in Omaha, Nebraska, depending on the stock market. Um, the largest refinery in the world is in India. The largest investment fund in the, in the world is in Abu Dhabi. And so I'm going around the United States, and I'm giving a speech in Las Vegas, and I think to myself, at least we have Las Vegas. You know, this is the one quintessentially American uh, icon. And I was having lunch with the gentleman who, who owns some part of it, a man called Steve Wynn. And he tells me, well, you know, the place you should go to is Macau. Macau has now overtaken Las Vegas in total gambling revenues. I said, yeah, but you still have these um, huge casinos. He said, oh, no, the Venetian in Macau is three times larger than the largest casino in Las Vegas. So I think to myself, if you don't even have shopping and gambling, you know, what is, what is left of the American empire? The two great leisure activities of the United States are gone. Um, and it made me begin to realize there was some, actually something quite dramatic happening, that these, you know, these lists are silly and some of them really don't matter. But it does tell you something when you start looking around in areas that the United States so completely dominated, that something has changed. And it made me realize that, you know, it was an accident of history that capitalism was originated in countries that are actually geographically very small. You know, if you think about it, uh, the, the Dutch, I mean, Holland is 15 million people. Uh, Denmark, my friend Nader is here from Denmark, and uh, it's you know, a lovely country, 5 million people. And the reason these countries were so rich uh, and so powerful was that the real giants in the world, the Indias, the Chinas, were asleep, unable in a, for a variety of reasons, either unlucky or stupid, unable to play the game and somehow participate fully in the in, in global economy and through it in global society. But what's changed really is that the giants are now awake, and that is changing the world. Uh, and really the simple thesis of my book is that what you are seeing right now is something that has never really happened in, in the world before, which is the large majority of countries around the world are on the move and rising. And this is producing a completely different international order than we've ever seen before. Um, people sometimes like to talk about the rise of Asia, you know, and as a, somebody who grew up in India, it's enormously flattering. But it really doesn't capture what's actually happening, you know. Uh, if you go to Brazil and see the excitement uh, in, in, of what's happening there, if you go to Africa and see what's happening there, if you go, I mean, you go to vacation in, in the Dominican Republic and you ask them, well, what's your growth rate this year? 8%. What was it last year? 8%. You know, now these are off small bases, but these countries used to grow 1%. All of a sudden, you're seeing it happen everywhere. Africa last year had 33 countries growing at over 4% a year. That's a third of the continent. Only one-third of those countries, by the way, have natural resources. So this is a pretty broad phenomenon, and it's happening simultaneously, and it's powering the economics of the world, it's powering the politics of the world, it's powering the culture of the world. So why is it happening? Well, I think it's happening for a very simple reason. I mean, at the very simplest level, it's happening because the natives have gotten good at capitalism. 
Um, if you look back 30 years ago, most countries really didn't think they were participating in the global economy. I mean, with the India I grew up in, there was a very distinct sense in which there was the American model of growth here, which was sort of free markets, free trade. And by the way, it was a plot hatched by Western multinationals to try to rape, pillage, and plunder the, 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 the rest of the world. There was the Soviet model of growth here, which was central planning, social, socialism, et cetera. And the Indians were trying something. It was a third way, a middle path, something like that. And it wasn't just the Indians. It was the Brazilians, the Egyptians. It was most of the world was adopting some middle course that was entirely distinct from the open world economy. And then you have the 1980s, the first shock I call a political shock, which is really the collapse of communism, the discrediting of central planning, the discrediting of, of state socialism. Uh, and you could see it everywhere in the world where suddenly all these countries are realizing they have to play the same game. They have to now somehow find a way to enter the single global economy and play on terms that are familiar. Uh, and they start trying to do that. And that political reorientation uh, brings a whole bunch of these countries and a whole bunch of their political movements into one system. Then you have sim almost simultaneously uh, a kind of financial shock, which is the movement of free capital, which is also a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, If you think back to 1980, the Italian lira was not convertible. The French franc was not convertible. The British pound was sort of convertible. But there were very few countries that were uh, currencies that were really convertible. So money stayed within national boundaries. Well, all of a sudden, that begins to change. And you have money moving around, rewarding and punishing countries based on its economic performance, a very new phenomenon. And now you have today $2 trillion exchanged by currency traders every day. And that money is going to and from places that are thought to be areas of opportunity, areas of high performance, uh, going away from areas of low performance. So you have this huge financial shock that is kind of disciplining the system. You go to any country in the world, you see some version of CNBC or Bloomberg, you know, where there's a kind of ticker tape underneath uh, almost providing you with a daily minute-to-minute -minute pulse of what's going on. And some minister will announce some government policy, and the ticker tape is almost, you know, it's like it goes down, and that tells you the market is did, did frowned on what that government uh, just said. And if it goes up, the market is happy. It's almost like you're getting your temperature taken every second. Um, and this is happening in every country in the world, every large country in the world. So you have that financial shock. And then you have the technological shock. And the technological shock is, of course, the, the reality of an interconnected global economy so that you can see IBM now talks about the way in which they, they plan their workforce to create a project. And the project goes something like this. It starts in New York. And when New York starts going to, you know, when closing hours in New York begin, the project moves to London or to Amsterdam or to Berlin. And when Berlin starts closing, it goes to, to Istanbul. And when Istanbul starts closing, it goes to Bangalore, and when Bangalore starts closing, it goes to Singapore, and so on, so that you have a literal 24-hour day where work really never stops. Uh, and these projects continue because project teams take it from one place to the other. And this is only possible because of the, 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 the collapse of the price of communications, uh, which happens, by the way, because of a kind of a, a, a strange uh, consequence of the technology uh, boom and bust you remember the technology boom that takes place in the United States. 
All these companies uh, have wild ambitions about what they're going to do. The stock market believes in them and gives them enormous amounts of money. Uh, lots of people invest in these, these mostly telecom companies, and, uh, Global Crossing, WorldCom, and com companies like that. And then, of course, the market crashes. So they all go bust. But they've already wired the world. They've laid fiber optic cable from end to end. And so the deed is done. Now the, you can just have very cheap phone calls around the world because the, the oversupply has produced a, a collapse in price. The collapse also means companies are looking to cut, uh, cut their costs. And so they begin a process of what is now called outsourcing, shifting costs to various locations, most famously or notoriously Bangalore, India, uh, but something that's happening all over the world. So these three shocks, the political shock, the uh, uh, financial shock, and the technological shock, all happen in the same period. And we are now living with the consequences. And you can see this, global, uh, this new global economy, if you will, emerge in the first years of the Clinton administration. For the first time, you see a real sensitivity on the part of the United States, even, to the realities of the global economy. You know, so Clinton is helped into office by a man called James Carville. Carville was his campaign manager, and he comes into office, and he's an old-fashioned liberal Democrat. And he believes, like many old-fashioned liberal Democrats, that God has put him on earth to spend the government's money on all kinds of good causes. Of course, he never says that. When you want to spend money in, in Washington, this is a very important rule. I don't know if the same is true in London. If you want to spend money, it's called investment. If somebody else wants to spend it, it's a you know, pork barrel spending, boondoggles, whatever you call it. So he proposes a series of strategic investment programs, which are all turned down by Robert Rubin, who is then the head of the National Economic Council, later the Secretary of Treasury. And Rubin says, in every case, you can't do this. The bond market will go crazy. can't do this. The long bond will go up. So Carville resigns from the White House and leaves in frustration and he comes out and he tells the story. He says, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be one of two things when I grew up. I wanted to be the pope or the president. It always struck me these were the two most powerful positions in the world. He said, I've changed my mind. In my next life, I want to come back as the bond market. Because obviously you can scare the hell out of everyone if you're the bond market. <laughs> what I find most interesting about this is here is somebody in the White House, in the most powerful country in the history of the world, and he's worried about the bond market. Imagine what it feels like to be in Costa Rica or to be in Ghana. You know, imagine the pressures that you feel if you're in another country, which is much less, much smaller, has a much smaller domestic economy, and is buffeted by the winds of capitalism. And you get this sense, by the way, even if you listen to the people who are the most vociferous about their denunciation of globalization. Probably the man, the, the biggest anti-globalization leader in the world today is a man called Enrique, um, Enrico Morales, a, a president of Bolivia. He's an indigenous uh, person, first time someone like that has been elected. He comes into office uh, a couple of years ago and he actually nationalizes an industry. I mean, when has that happened, right? It, it, for the last 20 years you've been hearing about privatization, not nationalization. He comes to New York to me do some UN speech and then happens to meet a bunch of people among them me and he says to me um, he says you know I'm so glad to meet with you sir because I have come to New York actually not to do this nonsense at the UN I've come here to meet people like you and people on Wall Street people at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs because I want them to understand the great opportunities 
in, uh, in Bolivia, and I want them to invest there. I wanted to, you to understand Bolivia's story. And so I thought to myself, you know, should I sort of be bold enough to explain to him, well, if that was what he was aiming for, then, you know, death to the Yankees is not the best marketing slogan that he's been employing for the last few years. But in any event, what, what's clear is even somebody like that at some point realizes, look, I want to get reelected. I want growth. If I want growth, it means I need investment. If I need investment, I've got to go to Wall Street and to try and, you know, explain my country's profile. So, you know, it, it always reminds me, these are kind of probably uh, uh, controversial uh, a, a phrase at the London School of Economics, but it always made me think that while Margaret Thatcher may not have been right about Britain, it was certainly a very powerful statement when looking at the rest of the world. When she started her reforms, she said when somebody asked her, well, how do you, why do you think they will succeed? She said, well, there is no alternative. And what I'm struck by when you go around the world and you see the the travails, the ups and downs of all these countries, the, the power, the hegemony of ideas is so powerful. There is no alternatives. People may not like a particular reform policy. It may not, it, it may not pass. There is no alternative set of ideas to organize a political economy. And that reality has meant that these countries are all playing the same game. They're all participating in the same global economy. They're same, playing by the same rules. And that fundamentally is what has changed the world. Uh, and so we are now in that world, in a world in which all these countries are playing the same game, some doing better and some doing worse. But it is striking how many are doing better than they've ever done before. Um, if you look at the World Bank data, 2006, 2007, and 2008 is actually not going to look that different, 124 countries around the world grew at, at, at 4%. 90 countries grew at 5%. Now, if you look back and ask yourself what those figures were 30 years ago, it's like 35 countries. Very, very, I mean, a completely different picture. And if you then add one additional layer to it, which is to look at the inflation rate, which is an absolutely crucial uh, issue for many, many countries, the inflation rate 35 years ago, um, countries that had inflation rates over 15%, I think, was something like 30, 33, 34. And these were big countries. You know, Peru, Argentina, Turkey had inflation rates of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 percent, respectively. You go now and look at the countries that have inflation rates over 15 percent. Um, it's, I think, seven. And they are Haiti, uh, Burma, North Korea, Zimbabwe. You know, in other words, it's the, it's the, the, the misfit, dysfunctional, uh, basket case economies and, and, and polities of the world that are really not having very large impacts on the world economy. So these two things, genuinely having tamed inflation, which was a huge cancer in large parts of the developing world, and genuinely having started growth, have comple completely changed the world we live in um, because of this, the, this magic of 124 countries growing around the world. What I'm struck by more than anything else is not just the, the numbers, but the way in which it's changing the way people look at the world, the way they look at themselves, and the way in which they really kind of have created new narratives for themselves. I, I give you a, a silly example, but when I was uh, going to college in the United States, I'd go back to India every year during the 1980s. And people in India would always ask me questions about, about America, you know, because Amer Indians are fascinated by America, always have been. Uh, and I have to say they were not 
fascinated by, you know, the high, high political struggles of the Reagan White House, and they were not interested in the great doings of Cambridge intellectuals, they would ask me questions about Donald Trump. They would ask me about this, you know, this great New York iconic figure, this multi-millionaire, uh, and it was a kind of lascivious, you know, kind of a vicarious pleasure in understanding what, what his life was like. People would ask me if I had ever met him. The answer was, of course, no. Um, I, you go back to India now, and you, what I'm struck by is there's no such interest in those kind of American figures. Uh, and I was trying to figure it out and realized one day uh, when I was in India over the new year, and they published one of these rich lists. I think they call them the same thing in, 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 Eng in England. Um, and I realized why, because India now has about 30 people who are actually richer than Donald Trump. So India has its own vulgar real estate billionaires to obsess about. <laughs> it doesn't need w American ones. And in point of fact, you read much of the Indian press, that is exactly, you know, there's an enormous interest in what these people buy, where they live, where they vacation, what they're going to do, all the things that people used to look at. You know, when I was growing up in India, if you wanted to know what the future was going to look like, you kind of, you looked at California, you know, and you figured if, you, if they're eating alfalfa sprouts today, we'll all be eating alfalfa sprouts 10 or 15 years from now. Uh, there was a sense in which the, 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 the trends, the modernity was being defined by watching what was happening in the United States. And what's fascinating to see now is that there is a much greater sense in India that there is some kind of indigenous modernity being created in India that is its own modernity, and it's a hodgepodge collection of uh, West, East, highbrow, lowbrow, but it's its own. Uh, and you see that, and you see the way in which it, it, it affects Indian, Indian pride, Indian confidence. You know, part of this, I think, is, is about the kind of narrative that, that countries see when, when thinking about the way they look at the world. When I was growing up, if you wanted to have a sense of what, what the global narrative was, what, what was on the global agenda, if you wanted to look up beyond India, I grew up in Bombay, um, you really had very few options. You listened to the BBC, later you could watch it, um, CNN, Time, Newsweek, the International Herald Tribune, The Economist, in the old days, the London Times, um, and that was sort of it. Um, and they were all giving you a roughly similar, consonant view of the world, you know, a kind of Western narrative. You go there now, and what you're struck by is how the, pl the, the platforms and the vehicles through which the, the, the tales of the world are told are entirely Indian, and they're entirely different. There are now 24 all-news networks in India, um, if there, there, are, there are four in English alone. Um, and if you go to the Arab world, there's Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya and Al Hura and, and many others. If you go to the, the Latin America, there are all Spanish ne networks that, that, that span the entire continent. And these provide a kind of perspective on the world that is quite different from what you would get if you were listening. It's not that I'm, I'm not making a postmodern point that there is, no, there is no ultimate truth, but where you sit or where you stand very powerfully determines how you look at the world. You know, I've always been struck by the way in which Russians look at World War II so differently than certainly Americans do. You know, I mean, the American narrative of World War II is of the United States heroically deciding to struggle against the forces of fascism in Europe with a little bit of help from Britain 
and, uh, and, and, and you know, defeating Adolf Hitler and, and, and the Japanese. And the Russians really have their minds entirely focused on something else, which is the Eastern Front. And they will point out that, you know, the Eastern Front was really, without any question, the place that, that, that most of Hitler's forces were engaged. 75% of, of German forces were engaged on the Eastern Front. That's where 75% of German casualties took place. For the Russians, the Western Front is kind of a sideshow. It's not really the important part. It's, 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 it's the most, you know, there's this wonderful moment where you read an American account of what happened in 1943. Uh, Stephen Ambrose, a very, very brilliant American historian, uh, describes the turn of, of World War II as 1943. And what happens in 43, according to Stephen Ambrose, is the Battle of Sicily. The Battle of Sicily is a very important battle, which engages 65,000 uh, soldiers, uh, German soldiers. At the same time taking place is the Battle of Kursk, which engages 1.65 million soldiers. It doesn't get a line in Stephen Ambrose's book, and it doesn't actually get a, you know, a, a second in many of the World War II documentaries that have been done in the United States. Now, you know, it's not that one or the other is, is more important. It is that for the Russians, of course, the Eastern Front is the pivot. Uh, and so they see it that way. If you talk to Indians about World War II, uh, particularly of a certain generation, of my father's generation certainly, they will tell you that the, the dominant thing for them about World War II was not that Britain and the United States saved freedom for the world, but that Britain enlisted India in a struggle to save freedom in Britain without granting it to India itself. Uh, and that this was a, you know, a kind of extraordinary act of hypocrisy uh, that, that galled the Indians, and that that is still the memory they have of it. Um, I have a friend who we, we were at the uh, cabinet war rooms, and a friend of mine, an Indian, said her father has still never stepped into the cabinet war rooms because she can't forgive Churchill for his attitude towards Indian independence. Now, you know, and he's an American. He's a, a you know, a, a, a kind of flag-saluting American. And, and, and you miss some of that nuance when you have only one set of narratives. But now you have a multiplicity of narratives, and you have every country and every culture and every people getting their own chance to tell their own version of what happened to themselves and to the world. And this is only going to multiply. This is only going to pro proliferate. Uh, and so I, I think it's very important to recognize that this is not merely a story of hard numbers in economics. It is a story of what those hard numbers will do in terms of how they reshape the world politically and culturally and economically. Um, it sounds mostly like a good news story, right? It sounds like a story of, uh, of great growth and, and such. But there, is a, uh, there are, I'd say, a series of problems associated with it that are real problems. I have always tended to think over the last few years that we in the West have focused on the wrong thing. There has been a great tendency to focus on the fears of the downside, you know, depression, panic, recession. Uh, George Soros is now telling us that the current economic crisis is going to cause the collapse of the Western world as we know it. Uh, this is, I think, his fourth book making that prediction in the last 10 years. Maybe he'll be right this time, but I would point out that, you know, uh, there's actually an extraordinary resilience in this system, and, it, and part of the resilience is it takes this kind of pain and then moves on. And, you know, this is a very painful period in many ways. Uh, but we, kn we know how these things work. There are cyclical adjustments that take place. What we don't know how to deal with is the problem of the upside, the problem of growth. What we don't know how to do, it because we've never had it before, is what to do when 124 countries around the world are growing at 4% a year. 
And we are seeing what that means in terms of the strain and stress on natural resources, uh, on, on energy. And that, in, I think, is going to be the real challenge of the world we're going into. If you look at any, anything, it is raw material of any kind, energy source of any kind, it is more scarce, it is more stressed, and it is more expensive than it has ever been. Commodity prices, for example, are not at a 20-year high. They're at a 200-year high. They've never been as expensive as they are today. Um, and you can see that with oil. Oil is now at a higher price in inflation-adjusted dollars than at any point since its, since its discovery. Um, and, and we're running out of stuff. And if you look at what's happening in China with water, the 100 major cities in China are all going to experience actual acute shortages of potable water in the next 10 years. Um, Australia has begun to put into has, has begun to construct desalination plants. Now, desalination is the most expensive way to get water in the world. It is six times as expensive as, as drilling holes in the ground. And the reason they're doing it is because they fear that they are going to run out of water. Um, and then, of course, you have the ultimate challenge, which is climate change and global warming, which is produced by all these forces. One of the reasons that predictions about climate change have tended to be underestimates if you look at the models, is that the models kept putting in um, global growth figures that were, tended to be underestimates. You know, you, you sort of f figure the world is go global economy is going to grow 3% and it grows actually 3.5%. You figure it's going to grow 3.5% it grows 4%. Yeah, it grew 4.4% for the last few years. And that reality has produced a much faster pace of carbon release than people had assumed. So we have to figure out how to deal with that set of problems. Uh, and along with them come, you know, if that wasn't bad enough, uh, a, 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 a serious uh, kind of corollary to this world I'm describing, which is the rise of nationalism. So economic globalization is making all these countries richer, and they're getting more assertive, and they're getting more proud, and they're getting more nationalistic. You know, I mean, I tell the story in the book of meeting with a Chinese uh, guy, somebody who I was told I should meet because he's a brilliant young Chinese yuppie who was starting some new internet company. Uh, and we, have a, we had coffee, I think quite literally at Starbucks, and, we're, and he's talking to me about some American television show that he was perfectly versed in and I knew nothing about. Um, but you know, was, he was clear he was very up-to-date on, on, on modern Western culture. And then we start talking about politics. We talk about Taiwan. We talked about Japan. We talked about the United States. And you saw a kind of raw nationalism I mean, he was quite willing to go to war over Taiwan. He was quite willing to go to war with Japan. Uh, and it reminded me that if you'd gone and had coffee with a young German uh, member of the Naval League in 1910, uh, it would have been a similarly young, smart, economically successful person that would have been nationalistic. wouldn't have been, you know, the peasants in, 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 uh, in Bavaria. So that reality of the rise of these countries economically but also politically is making the world much more complicated. So that, you know, if you look at trade negotiations, these countries that were, would once happily make concessions to get access to the Western market now say, no, you know, we want these things to work on our terms. Uh, you look at the debate over global warming. I remember a fiery exchange at an international conference where West, a couple of American uh, delegates tried to get, get the Indians and the Chinese to get more serious about, about the, the problem of pollution in India and China. And Indian got up and said, we have the right to, to pollute per capita as much as you do. 
we may be polluting, but in terms of in per capita terms, we pollute a lot less than you. Well, if, of course, if India and China were to pollute per capita as much as the Western world, you know, then that's that's a lot of pollution because you're multiplying it by 2.5 billion. Um, and that, you know, my law of mathematics is anything multiplied by 2.5 billion is a very large number. So I don't have a PowerPoint. I was asked if I had one. If I had one, that would have been the sole slide. Any, any number, no matter how small, multiplied by 2.5 billion is a lot, becomes a large number. Um, but it points to the real, the real dilemma, I think, that we face, which is how to, how to get the, the benefits of this world I'm describing without the downsides. You know, how, do you, how do you try to achieve that, that uh, combination? And of course, it does involve uh, these hoary old cliches now, like global, global uh, cooperation, global governance, if not global government. Because the problems are all global. The problems are all multi transnational. Uh, you, you're simply, there's almost no problem that is going to be effectively solved by any one country. Uh, but the, the, the politics is all still resolutely national. And if you want to blame just the United States for this, I, you know, I refer you to the Irish vote on, on the Lisbon Treaty just a few weeks ago. Right? This is not just an American problem. The pull of national politics and national identity is still very strong. Um, and yet, these problems are only going to be solved uh, through some kind, of, some kind of transnational political brokering or deals. Let me give you a simple example. You deal with the problem of global warming. There is really only one solution. There's only one fu fundamental issue and one solution. The fundamental issue is Chinese and Indian coal. Uh, everything else pales in comparison. 80% of the new CO2 that is going to be released into the air, uh, atmosphere is going to be Chinese and Indian coal-fired power plants. Between now and 2012, the Chinese and Indians will build 850 coal-fired power plants. The combined CO2 emissions of those power plants is five times the total savings of the Kyoto Accords, if implemented. So you can, put, you, know, you can drive all the hybrids you want, and you can do all the energy efficiency you want, and China just ate that for breakfast, you know, and India just ate it, ate it for lunch. It, it won't matter. So what's the solution? The West is going to have to subsidize clean coal technology in India and China. Now, if you can find me the politician in the Western world, yeah, now find me the politician in the Western world who will say, my fellow countrymen, I have two pieces of news for you. First, I'm going to raise your taxes. And secondly, the proceeds of these taxes are going to go to the Chinese and the Indians. You have a very brave politician. But yet, I mean, I would love to hear a contestation. There is no other solution. Because China and India need energy desperately, and they are going to use coal. And they do coal-fired power plants on a competitive bidding process by which the cheapest plant gets it. And the cheapest one is not clean coal technology, which doesn't even quite exist anymore but, uh, right now. But if you're going to get to it, you're going to, have to, talk, you're going to be talking about transfers and subsidies, and that is the only solution. And yet we haven't figured a political mechanism to make it happen economically the cost is not so great. It's something the Western world could easily afford if you consider the benefits. So it's, a, it's just one example of what the challenge is. Now, let me talk finally uh, about the United States and its role in all this. A friend of mine who, who gives talks very often, he's actually a priest, said to me, in the middle of your talk, in a loud voice, say to people, in conclusion, it always wakes them right up. <laughs> but I think I'm well past the, uh, the middle of the talk, so don't worry. Um, the United States is in some ways, um, you know, the country that 
benefits the most and is threatened most by this new world order. It benefits the most in the sense that economically, what I'm describing is, this, is, an, is a global economy that is going to grow and boom and be dynamic, and the United States is really at the center of this process. If you look at which companies have benefited enorm enormously from the, the ongoing globalization of the world, it has been American companies. They have mastered it. They have figured out how to best deploy their resources. Look at what's happened to the city of London, right? I mean, it is a booming, flourishing place, but uh, what, what companies have managed to do, do so well here? So in that sense, in the sense of an expanding eco economic pie, in the sense of a win-win for people, you can make the case that the United States is, is doing fine and will continue to do fine if it continues to make the kind of adjustments and, be, and, and stays competitive. At a political military level, uh, however, that's not quite true, right? As China becomes more important in its part of the world, as India becomes more important, as Brazil becomes more important, as South Africa becomes more important, whose unrestricted power and influence get constrained? The United States. You know, the, the power in political terms is something of a zero-sum game. Uh, and the United States will face greater and greater constraints on its, on its freedom of action, and it will face a very different world. Um, you know, I'll tell you this. I mean, to give you an example of this. I, when I wrote the book, I certainly never thought of the Middle East as an area where it applied. The, the Middle East remained, I thought, a resolutely American part of the world. The United States provides security guarantees to countries in the Middle East, very important countries in the Middle East, from Israel to Saudi Arabia to Egypt. But look at what's happened in the last month in the Middle East. In Lebanon, the warring parties have signed an, an agreement, and they signed the agreement with the, with the, uh, under the good offices and brokerage of the Qatar government, with no involvement of the United States, because, of course, we don't talk to Hezbollah. Um, what happened a week later was that Israel decided it was going to start negotiations with Syria. Uh, and, it, of course, we don't talk to the Syrians very much, so they went to the Turks, and the Turks were the brokers. And so these two very important shifts that have taken place in the Middle East, a kind of interesting change in the, in the relations among nations, have taken place entirely outside the aegis of the United States. And so you are witnessing perhaps, and I say perhaps because it's a very early sign, but you are witnessing perhaps the beginning of a kind of post-American Middle East, where you have countries beginning to search for alternative arrangements that produce, that get them what they want, that produce certain interests, that produce a certain degree of stability, that reach out to certain people. In, in this particular case, it may be because of, I would argue, particular foolishness on the part of American diplomacy, because, you know, we are resolutely determined never to talk to bad guys. So, you know, we've, uh, we've lost a lot of influence as Iran has been able to, to work its way with Hezbollah, with groups within Iraq, with Hamas. Uh, but we're sitting in a state of pristine virtue because we don't talk to the bad guys. You know, I mean, the Iranians might be running circles around us, but hey, you know, at least we're virtuous. We've managed to, to stay, you know, stay pure. But there is a broader problem, which is as these countries make their way in the world, they will try to find ways to do it without the United States. Um, and, you know, in some cases that will be perfectly fine and it will be something that, uh, that will add to stability. In other cases it won't. What we will mostly need is an attitude adjustment from the United States. It will need a recognition that this is a process that, you know, we should encourage, we should embrace, uh, we should try to shape. At some fundamental level, what the United States needs to, to figure out is this rise of the rest that I described is happening. 
do you want to embrace it or do you want to fight it? And if you want to embrace it, you know, there is a, a certain set of actions you can take. If you want to fight it, there's a whole different set of actions we can take. I, I would argue that one of the great and interesting models for the American government to look at is actually American multinational corporations. American corporations have realized that this new world is inevitable, and they have become very quickly very global. They were, ne they were not so, by the way. American companies were largely American. They pretended to be multinational by having you know, a Paris office where the CEO could go and have nice dinners. Uh, now you have genuine American multinationals. I mean, the company like General Electric, never gone in for a joint venture uh, ever before, never gone in for a partnership before. Now they partner with locals. They do whatever it takes to get, uh, to get into other countries using local talent, local companies, local uh, uh, networks, whatever it takes. And it means a very different kind of deal, if you will. It means a, a very kind of different leadership model, where one in which the natives are equals. The natives are empowered. Uh, they will often get very, very rich off this process. Their companies will become enormously strong and powerful and could potentially be competitors one day. And that's simply the only terms on which you can really have business. And that is happening in many, many com companies around uh, in the United States. And it's one of the reasons they're doing so well. If you look at the American economy right now, by the way, it is growing at 1.2%, all of which 100% right now is American exports. The American domestic economy is contributing absolutely zero to growth right now. So if you did not have American exports, um, you, which is largely being fueled by these companies, you would have no growth. Uh, and it and interestingly turns the whole idea of America as the engine of the world economy on its head, where the American economy is now surviving because of demand from the, other, the other rest of the world rather than fueling uh, the, the growth in, in the rest of the world. But if... If these multinationals could do it, the question is, why can Washington not? And I think one of the great, great problems we face in the United States is the complete breakdown of, of politics and, and the dysfunctions in Washington. Washington has become a place that is entirely unable to really solve any of the basic long-term problems the country faces, and it has become a smug, insular city, imperial in its attitude towards the rest of the world. Uh, why has it happened? Well, you know, Americans believe in competition. You know, believe that everything in the world is made better by competition. You know, companies, people, athletes. The one thing we haven't applied that to really is countries, you know, because the United States has really had the field to itself for the last 20 years. And guess what? It's made America smug and arrogant and insular. And it stopped looking around and asking itself, you know, how does the rest of the world do this? What should we be looking at? It's, it's, it's really extraordinary to sit in the United States and recognize you can have debates about something like health care in which there is really never any reference to the fact that there are actually 15 other advanced industrial countries that have health care systems. And perhaps there might be something that one could learn from the way in which they've you know, gone about this. Occasionally you will hear a reference to it in, in, the, in the sense of these are horrors to be avoided. So as, as Rudy Giuliani said when he, uh, when he was campaigning, he, he claimed that if he, had gotten, if he had gotten his prostate cancer in England, he would have died. Poor, poor man, um, rather than be rather than being miraculously cured as he was in the United States, um, but but I mean I think this is a this is part of a really broad attitudinal shift that that infects American foreign policy, where there really is uh, a very it's very difficult for people to really put themselves in the place of other other people and ask what do they think, how do they look at the world, you know, should we care that other people are doing things. 
And it, you know, it has its small impacts, it has its big impacts. You know, in the United States, there are only three countries in the world that have still not adopted the, the metric system. Uh, they are, I believe, um, Burma, Liberia, and the United States. Um, and, you know, it says something. It just says that we, we, we are still, we still think of ourselves as an island unto ourselves. Now, my last point is that this has to change because the world is opening up. And just at the moment that the world is opening up, the worst thing that can happen is for the United States to close down. You know, the United States has enormous advantages in this world I'm describing. Its economy is dynamic and flexible. Its society is incredibly adaptive. I and mean, we're able to assimilate immigrants the way that almost no society in the world can. Uh, and yet, when you look at this world, Americans do get scared, as, as do Europeans. But if Americans start getting scared and start closing down and turning off the very features of American success that have made it resilient and that have made it prosper in this world, that would be the ultimate irony. Because, of course, this world is in some large measure a world uh, that America created. Uh, you know, it was American diplomats who for 60 years have gone around the world telling countries to open themselves up to a global economy, to free trade. Uh, you know, I remember very well that this was the idea of free trade was very much regarded as an American plot, um, you know, hatched by, by people in Washington and New York. American businessmen would come around to all these countries and tell them to open up their economies. American scholars would go to these countries and tell them to open themselves up, to open up their politics, to open themselves up to technology, to capitalism, to commerce. In a sense, what we were telling the world is open yourselves up to a kind of American vision of modernity, to an American vision of modern life. And the rest of the world finally said, yes, okay. And the United States is thunderstruck. And Americans don't quite know what to make of this. The Pew International um, Foundation did a set, a set of surveys about nine months ago where they asked people in 47 countries, do you think free trade is a good thing? And what was striking to me was thumping majorities everywhere said, yes, it is a good thing. You know, countries like India and China and Nigeria, 70%, 80%, 92% 90, of Chinese said free trade is a good idea. The country that came last, 47th out of 47, was the United States. And by the way, other European countries were toward the bottom. So the real danger here is just as the rest of the world is adopting a Western, let's call it, vision of modernity and joining in with a Western constructed idea of, of an open world, the West begins to lose faith in its own ideas and America begins to lose faith in its own ideas. And so I close by just saying to you, my greatest hope is that when some historian is writing about these times 100 years from now, he or she doesn't look back and say, you know, the United States, uh, it actually fulfilled its great, its great mission, its great historical mission in the world, which was to globalize the world. It just forgot along the way to globalize itself. Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 My lord, do I sit down now or do I stand? You can, you can sit down. You, you answer the questions relaxed in front of you. All right, done. Now, uh, thank, thank you very much for that uh, excellent, stimulating, interesting uh, lecture. Now, questions. I'm going to take two or three questions at the same time. 
and I don't want a summary of the lecture. In the House of Lords, the rule is, when you ask a question, you say, does the speaker agree that? Anything which is also, anything else, I'm going to shut down. <laughs> question. Yeah. And now if you take the mic, you'll have, you'll have really pleased us. <laughs> Do you agree that the American world is just a bit more than the George W. Bush's world? Is Obama not to bring another American world which will be entirely different? Okay. Um, no, hang on. I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm running the show. Okay, lady here. Uh, Yeah, please. Um, well, my question is a little bit similar to the gentleman's question just for, um, in your opinion, Mr. Zakari, I can't start, but is it safe? In your opinion, do you, who, which uh, presidential candidate do you feel would be best in terms of uh, maybe reestablishing American legitimacy in this sort of uh, globalizing world and why? Gentleman in back there. Yeah, gentleman in back there. Yeah, yeah, it's coming to you, coming to you. <laughs> when I point to you, Mike comes to you. Yeah. It's like magic. Uh, th uh, thank you, uh, Lord Desai. Uh, I, I'd like to ask uh, uh, Mr. Fawid Zakaria if he could speculate a little bit or think aloud uh, and tell us how will this tension between the United States and some of these emerging uh, countries like China, India, Brazil, and what have you. How do you think it will play, given what you described to us? Thank you. Gentlemen there, on the top, yeah. Come on. Uh, do you agree uh, that what is really required is not a post-American world, but a post-nationalistic world? Okay, that's good enough. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, okay, let me try and take them in, in reverse order. I, I think that, um, look, it's, it's a, the, the question about a post-nationalistic world, it's, a, it's an old uh, problem, which is uh, Isaiah Berlin wrote about it uh, several decades ago. As the world modernizes, people feel that surely uh, human beings are going to give up their attachment to this strange and arbitrary construct of the nation. Uh, and to a certain extent, that has proved true. But what has happened is that they have retained their affection and affiliation with very deep, primordial, ascriptive identities, by which I mean to say the Scots turn out to not be that fond of the United Kingdom, but they're very fond of Scotland. Um, and you know the people who speak, uh, you know the, the the French speakers and the and the uh, uh, the um, um, uh, you know the two groups in Belgium are returning to their the, the Walloons, sorry, the Walloons are returning to a pre-Belgian uh, understanding of identity. And if you look at you know Yugoslavia, obviously that has played itself out. And if you look at Kenya, that has played itself out. And you look at India, you see a return to you know, Tamil identity or Punjabi identity that is actually in some ways as strong as Indian identity. But it hasn't meant the end of identity. So 
in some ways it complicates the question even further because yes, you have gotten post-nationalistic politics in the sense that the nation state has turned out to be a rather recent and perhaps ephemeral uh, political grouping, but that doesn't mean people are ready to go to a supranational grouping, they want to go to a subnational grouping, which actually complicates matters in terms of solving some of these problems even more because, you know, People look at the European Union, say, if you're a Scot, and say, well, we can thrive just fine in the European Union. What we don't need is this strange acts of union from 1707 um, or, you know, whatever it is. And th that, I think, is in some ways the reality of the world. And, you know, as a secular humanist, I am a little bit puzzled by it myself. But, but you know, these are very, very strong pulls. And, and then you see them, of course, with religion on the tension between emerging countries and uh, the, the developed world, I think actually this is going to be one of the very interesting um, areas where you're going to see a kind of new level of complexity in the world. So there's a whole bunch of people who are great Asia boosters who say, you know, the big thing happening in the world is the rise of Asia and it's going to replace the West and it's going to replace America. Well, I have news for you as somebody who grew up in, in India. There is no Asia. Asia is a Western construct. There's India, there's China, there's Japan. They kind of hate each other. Um, and so I don't think you're going to see some happy, you know, harmonious rising of Asia, which will somehow replace, uh, replace the West. There's going to be a very complicated relationship between these, uh, among these countries. I think it actually plays, it gives the United States a very important role uh, to be a, play a kind of Bismarckian role by being trusted by the Indians, trusted by the Chinese, trusted by the Japanese, but they have to be honest brokers. They have to play the game fairly. But in that context, I think there will be a role. I don't predict by, by any sense war. And these countries are very serious about economic growth. They understand the benefits of globalization. But, you know, it's going to be a very long way before you get some kind of an Asian union uh, that, that in any way brings together these countries in their interests. I think you're more likely to see uh, kind of a, a, a difficult and complicated and somewhat Machiavellian game of balancing, but will never be described as such. One of the interesting features of Asian political life is that there's total hypocrisy. So that if you ever ask anybody, are you doing, you know, are you building your army because you want to balance against China? They'll say, of course not. China is our best friend. But of course, they're building their army to balance against China. So it's you know, unlike, say, in the West, where you had NATO, which was an absolutely clear-cut organization, explicitly dedicated to defend against the Soviet Union, and the countries would resolve to do so every year at yearly summits. Nothing like that will happen in Asia. There will be summits of brotherly love at which everyone is balancing against everyone at, at, at all times. And so we just have we'll have to get a little bit better at that kind of thing, which is a, a little bit difficult for a kind of Anglo-Saxon mind, which wants you know, complete clarity in declaratory policy and in, in, in the sort of underlying intentions. Um, on the, on the, the repeated question, look, I think, uh, I think Obama has a real opportunity here to transform America's relations with the world. I think that he has uh, spoken in terms that are very encouraging. I think what is most encouraging is not just the promise of Obama in the sense of what he has, what he means, and the fact that it would be, you know, a, 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 an extraordinary signal to the world for a black man to be elected in the United States. But he is really off the world. I mean, when he thinks about Kenya, he he's not thinking about them. He's thinking about his his father and his grandmother. When he thinks about Indonesia, he's thinking about his stepfather and the country he he lived in uh, and grew up in. 
Uh, and that's, a, you know, this, I, I don't, I think I'm right in saying he would be the first American president to have ever lived abroad. Um, you know, so I, I think that's right. I think John Kennedy spent a few years at the American Embassy in London, but that would be the, uh, the exception. I mean, I mean, there may be few, but he is, a, he is off the world in a way that is quite different from the others. The test is going to be, will he really be able to transform Washington? I have more uh, faith that he would be able to transform the world than that he would be able to transform Washington. It's a, you know, it's a place very set in its ways with a great deal of structures of power and, and interest, and it's a, they're very comfortable with the, the way things are. Um, but I think he has that opportunity, and I certainly hope uh, he, he does have a kind of transformational effect. Okay, another bunch of questions. Uh, can you bring a thing here, and can you give it to that? Uh, first here. Um, you mentioned the hegemony of ideas and there being no alternative. And I'd like to know if you think that's what the world really does need in the long term, where countries are so diverse in terms of their political, economic, and cultural context. Uh, yes, you spoke about the way in which other countries had embraced the U.S. economic model. Does the post-American world possibly foretell other countries embracing the U.S. American political model? Do you see democracy in the Middle East or multi-party elections in China? Uh, do you think that the Indo-U.S. nuclear deal is the best interest of the world as a whole? Okay, gentlemen there. Do you think uh, that reform of the U.N. and the World Bank are fundamental symbols of the post-American world? Over here. Um, you didn't mention any type of political pressures that might, that the rest, as you call them, might experience as a result of economic growth and the rapid changes that they're experiencing. Do you think they're not important or? Can, can you repeat that? I'm not sorry. Yes, you did not mention any type of political pressures that the rest, as you call them, might experience as a result of economic growth and the other shocks that you mentioned. Do you think they will not play a factor in how the world will look? No. For a small country growing at 8%, if there's many of them over, over the globe, the U.S. probably has a 50-ton bomb for every one of them. And that would be an extreme, but how would that dynamic, how do you see that dynamic entering into how things will play out? It's like 12. Okay. <laughs> uh, they're, they're all wonderful questions, actually. So the first one, which is really uh, very, very profound, should there be a greater diversity of ideas? Um, you know, is it good to have a hegemony of ideas, that one model, one political economic model, broadly speaking? You know, remember... I'm talking about a model that can encompass Sweden and the United States. Um, look, I grew up in India, and I saw rural poverty in India. And I heard all these people who were explaining how Indian socialism was going to cure poverty. And it got worse and worse and worse. And these people lived in conditions that were just, I mean, heartbreaking, conditions that were really not particularly different from that of the 16th century. And then you see the reforms put, put in place and you see probably 150 million people have been lifted out of poverty. And you see that in many, many parts of the world, in China, in Brazil. Um, so I have to say, I have, uh, I'm reluctant to have them junk uh, the, you know, a model that has actually reduced poverty for, for people in the world uh, in the search of some, something intellectually more elegant and uh, that would satisfy you know, a, a kind of need for diversity of ideas um, at Western universities. 
Um, I, I mean, I mean, I, I can feel the frustration, but I just say, go to these countries and look at what it's doing. I would rather try to use all our our resources intellectually to solve the problems that arise from the application of this, these ideas. And you know, one of a very important one of them is uh, inequality, uh, which is happening all over the world. It's not just in the United States that inequality is rising. It's rising in India. It's rising in China. It's also a misallocation of resources. You know, underinvestment in things like education, which are have, have too longer-term payoff for the market to entirely understand. So you know, there's a very powerful role for government for public investment, things like that. One of the reasons China is actually doing better than India is, frankly, because it has understood the role of, of public investment in that sense. So I think that's where I would put my energy rather than trying to say, you know, no, 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 I want to come up with the, the you know, the new, you know, the, the new green economics, red economics, brown economics, blue economics. Um, on the U.S. political model, will the rest of the world adopt it? Um, sometimes I think to myself, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> Because what I mean by that, the, 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 you know, the, in, the special interest, the lobbying, the, the money, which I think is, is, is unfortunate. Will the Middle East adopt, be more democratic? I think as long as oil is at $150 a barrel, there isn't a chance in hell that much is going to change. Because the, the sad correlation between oil and uh, political dysfunction continues. The, the, as the price of oil stays high, the countries that have it have no need to reform themselves politically or economically because they have free resources, they have free revenue. The countries that have to hustle, that actually need to earn money, are actually much more likely to genuinely modernize. If you look at a Saudi Arabia, they're, they're spending their money better than they were in the old days. There's no question that there's a much greater degree of uh, a kind of sensible management, sensible economics. They're, they're, the, the globalization has affected that, and it has made them more careful stewards of this money, whether it's in the UAE, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, whether it's in Angola, whether it's in, uh, in Qatar. But, you know, Saudi Arabia is still basically run like a medieval monarchy. Um, and it doesn't seem likely to change very much. I think there will be some small movement. So no, I don't expect that the resource-rich countries of the world will, will change very much. And that kind of affects and infects the rest of the Middle East. You know, so it becomes very difficult, it's a kind of strange, unholy cycle. I will say that Iraq over time might well develop into a real democracy, which is in some part because of the, of the United States, but in large part because it is a divided society and it cannot be run by a dictatorship. You know, it would be, if it were a Shia dictatorship, there would be a Sunni revolt. If there would be a Sunni dictatorship, there would be a Shia revolt. And in either case, there would be a Kurdish secession. And that reality, those kind of natural checks and balances are producing a kind of interesting negotiation of issues that have never been negotiated in the Middle East. So that the Shia and the Sunni are having to come to terms with each other's difference in perspective and difference in doctrine in a way they've never ever had to do before. I mean, the, 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 the Middle Eastern solution to this is you basically stomp down the other, you know, you repress massively the minority and you hope they shut up and never talk, you know, and never mention that they're Shia. Uh, and that is changing in Iraq. And it could be, it could mean that I don't know whether a model, but it will provide an interesting contrast to the way in which some of these issues are being handled in Egypt or Syria or Saudi Arabia. Um, the World Bank and IMF are actually good examples of what's, I think, what's wrong with the world. It's a kind of, you know, these, these insider clubs where you have this absurd tradition where an American heads the World Bank and the Europe, and a European heads, heads the IMF. Well, what about the other 90% 90, 90 of humanity? 
You know, I mean, maybe they should be given a crack at it. Um, and then the, the final question was the rest's political problems. They'll all have problems. You know, it's, it's easy to grow when you're growing from such a low base. But I'm not sure that that will fundamentally change this unlocking I'm describing. You know, France had lots of political problems over the last 200 years. What if they had, you know, five empires, two, uh, five uh, republics, two empires, one crypto-fascist dictatorship? They've still grown a lot over those last 200 years and been a very, very rich, prosperous, thriving country. I think we can take a last little, yeah. Gentleman there, and then gentleman there in the middle, yeah. yeah. Um, when you're talking, uh, you, you, I'm very much struck by the fact that it, 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 there seems to be so many more moving parts now in the world. And uh, my very simple knowledge of chaos theory tells me that sooner That's or later... That's going too that, long. That's going too long. Okay. <laughs> that is, is the world more unstable as a result? Yeah. Uh, who, who has a mic down here? Yeah. Um, would you agree that the um, uh, economic growth rates in excess of 4% are irreconcilable with the structural changes that are happening in the global energy market? And uh, if so, what are the consequences? Yeah, the first one. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, no. Uh, well, yeah. Me? Okay. Um, yeah, I was wondering, as a journalist, what do you think uh, is the role of the role of journalism and a magazine like Newsweek uh, in the post-American world, as you have mentioned, the multiplication of uh, different medias in the world? It's the problem in Washington, a fear factor, that they cannot respond to the uh, emerging yeah. world. It's the problem in Washington, a fair factor. I hear you. Uh, one more. Uh, where is the mic? How about a woman yeah. so that we give equal opportunity? As a result of the extreme, or the large populations of India and China, will they eventually have an ultimately uh, unassailable advantage in economic um, contests? Yeah. No, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Maybe that. If you were appointed to be the um, next president of the United States as foreign sec uh, uh, secretary um, of foreign affairs um, and you had a limited number of items you could get on the agenda, what three items would you like to see the president take on? Okay, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's it. The shop is shut. <laughs> All right. Um, let me try and take these in, in, in no particular order. Um, on the question of, of journalism and what, what my idea of journalism is, I have to confess I have no grand ideas or theories about journalism. I kind of just do my job. And uh, I don't have a theory of journalism. I don't know what journalists should do. I know what places like Newsweek should do in the face of what you're describing, which is desperately struggle for market share as the rise of the rest overwhelms us. Because look, this reality is, you know, there are better and better newspapers, better and better magazines, better and better television around the world. And that means, you know, you have to ask yourself, how do you distinguish yourself? I, I would make the case that you try and be global because the others can be national. But in any event, the real, the real truth is you have a lot more competition, which is good because it forces you to do what you can do best. But it's bad in that, you know, the natives have gotten good at capitalism in, in a fundamental sense. Uh, the question about energy, uh, the cost of energy is very true. That the, you know, the single thing that can disrupt all this is really inflation more generally and the price of energy in particular. But, um, and it's part of this, the reality of this much growth. You know, have that, those many countries growing, does it put strains on resources? Does it drive prices up? 
Uh, and in previous golden ages, uh, inflation has been the killer. Uh, my sense is that there are so many people who have entered the workforce now, and it's probably something like three billion people have entered the global workforce, that there are also very strong deflationary pressures pushing down, and there is enormous productivity. So you have a more complicated global economy, and the simple fact of rising energy prices is not likely to derail it. Of course, it, if it goes on unendingly, it will, but think about this. The global economy has been able to, was able to withstand pretty easily the quadrupling of any energy prices. They went from about 20 to 80 with almost no effect. And it was really only once you got into the 90, 100, 120, 100. So the, the fact that it was able to take that much pain with the rise of energy prices suggests there was a fair degree of productivity and fair number of deflationary pressures in, the, in this economy. Um, with regard to the question of the uh, of, of chaos theory and the, is, it un is so many moving parts make the world unstable? It's a very interesting question. I think that uh, there is an element of unpredictability that is added to it without any question. Um, and there is an element of a loss of any center of control. You know, if you think of the internet, everyone is connected, but no one is in control. And that may be an interesting metaphor for the world we're in. But I'm not sure it means that it's fundamentally and inherently unstable. Because there are also many sources of stability. Think of the global economy we're in right now. Um, you know. The United States goes through a huge financial crisis. One interesting thing that happens is you find money coming in from Singapore, from China, from the Gulf to, to buy American assets at what they think are bargain prices. Maybe they should have waited a couple of months. But in any case, <laughs> what they thought were bargain prices. The point is if that money hadn't come in, Citigroup would have almost certainly gone bankrupt. Merrill Lynch would have almost certainly gone bankrupt. So there was a kind of systemic stability in having many moving parts in having other countries doing well. But you lose control, you know, you lose 10% of your company. I mean, and that is really a metaphor for this, what I'm describing. So you could imagine a situation where, uh, in, you know, in some situation, a peace or a local ceasefire is brokered by some regional power. And, you know, it's reasonably stable. But the United States isn't involved. And that's something of a shock to the system. And it, it's very different from the way things have been done in the past. But, you know, that may be the, the way of the future. And I actually think we should be looking for that kind of networked order rather than searching for some new hegemon. You know, if we go from an American world, we're going to go to a Chinese world. No, I think that we're going to go to this kind of more messy chaos theory world and, and what we have to search for are sources of stability within that world. Um, India and China, will they grow so large and will they become insurmountable? Well, my theory about development is this. It's easy to grow from $200 per capita GDP to 2000 The government just has to stop doing really stupid things. It's reasonably easy to go from 2000 to three or 4000 You know, the government just needs to get out of the way of the private sector and let it do things. To get from four or $5,000 per capita GDP to 15 is very, very hard. And very few countries have managed to do it. And it needs a complete modernization of society the financial institutions, the legal institutions, government. Uh, it, it, you know, that's a very, very tall order. And if you look at countries that have developed around the world, uh, you know, who has done it in the non-Western world? Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, probably, right? And that's it. Um, and th that just tells you that, you know, who knows what China and India will look like? They will, they will, these problems are not problems when you're at 
$1,500 per capita GDP, which is where India is, and $3,500 where China is. But yet they'll need to fully modernize, and I don't know that they will, and there will certainly be bumps along the way. The genius of 2.5 billion people is, even if they don't, the world I'm describing is going to come into being. You know, at six or $7,000 per capita GDP, China becomes the second largest economy in the world. At $12,000 per capita GDP, it becomes the largest economy in the world. So, you know, again, multiply any number by 2.5 billion, and it becomes a very large number. So that's, uh, that's that. Three items that I would pluck to, uh, to, if I was Secretary of State, I'm going to assume this is not non, uh, you know, this is foreign policy things, because what I would actually do, most importantly, is get the United States to have a serious energy program that would completely alter the, the shape of energy in the world, which only the United States could do because of its size, but it could do it. I would also fix American health care. But on, on, uh, on the non-domestic uh, uh, policy side, I would probably reduce American involvement in, in Iraq, but not eliminate it so that Iraq becomes one of the problems America is dealing with rather than the black hole of American foreign policy that is sucking all the time, energy, attention. You know, even now, with Iraq, with the surge having succeeded to a large extent, the United States is still spending $10 billion a month in Iraq, uh, and it takes up all the energy and attention of the United States. So there has to be a way to reduce the commitment, draw in other countries, regionalize the, 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 the presence in Iraq, so, or even internationalize it, so that you can, you, you can make this a, 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 one of many problems that the United States has to deal with. I would make a very substantial effort to solve the Israeli-Palestinian issue. I'm not one of these people who believes it is the cause of all problems. I'm not one of these people who believes that, you know, if there were a Palestinian state, you would magically have peace and harmony breaking out in the world. But I know it is a very powerful recruiting tool for the, some of the nastiest people in the world. And it has become a symbol of the fact that the United States in particular does not want to deal with, you know, does not want to deal on equal terms uh, in, in this negotiation. And if we were able to solve it, it would first of all be, a, in my opinion, a victory for both Israel and the Palestinians, because they would both be able to live in security and dignity. But it would take this enormous recruiting tool off the agenda for Al-Qaeda and its like. Um, and finally, what I would do was really try to reform, I know this is going to sound goody-two-shoes, but I would try to make a, a serious effort to reform global institutions. We have to find a way to solve these problems. You need fora in which this can happen. The United Nations is the only one we have, but it's pretty broken. But there is a window of opportunity. I think people understand that if you don't draw the Indians and the Chinese and the Brazilians in, that they will not have any stake in the existing international order and the institutions and the norms and the convention. So it seems to me this is really about creating a system where everyone feels that they are invested, everyone feels they have in the business term buy-in, so that they then feel as though this is a system worth, worth supporting, rather than going off and freelancing, rather than going off and doing independent things. So, I mean, that to me is the, is the answer. And the final uh, point about the fear factor, I think that that is the single biggest problem in Washington, but also in the rest of the world. I mean, you have a lot of people who are very scared, and they're scared of Al-Qaeda, they're scared of radical Islam, they're scared of their neighbors who are Muslim, they're scared of trade because it's going to steal their jobs, they're scared of immigration. And I think one thing we have to remember is ultimately and fundamentally, this has to be regarded as a, as a good news story. Two or three billion people are, are escaping the, the are, are in the prospect of escaping poverty. 
five or six hundred million have already escaped poverty. And when you talk about people going from one dollar a day to three dollars a day or four dollars a day, what you're talking about is people who were starving, who had absolutely were living subsistence lives, are now eating and drinking and consuming and producing and investing and saving and inventing and dreaming. And that is, you know, this is fundamentally a story of the unlocking of human talent and human potential. It has to be a better thing for the world to have two or three billion more people thinking about all these issues we're thinking about, involved in them, in some way able to be productive, rather than being treated like cattle, uh, as they have been for centuries. So whenever we get down about this, this world and all its problems, you have to remember that's the goal, that's the potential to unlock, to unlock and enlist all this human potential so that we create a, b a better world for all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think the applause says it all. Thank you very much for the most brilliant lecture and a very patient answering of many, many questions. Thank you.